When we talk about the economy, the formal and informal rules that govern how we trade goods and services, do you ever feel like the conversation has to be bigger than just talking about capitalism and socialism? Like, humans must be more creative than to just only be able to imagine two options, right? Like, do you ever wonder if we might be able to create an economic system that actually benefits both humans and the environment? Or what that economy would even look like? Well, a designer might start with one important question before offering possible solutions, which is, how do you want to live? Welcome to This Plus That, a show about connecting the seemingly unconnectable and why it matters. My name is Brandy, I'm your host, and I've spent most of my career as a designer of graphics, of brands, of spaces aimed at creating collaboration. And how do you want to live is for sure a design question. Because whether you realize it or not, everything around you has been designed, which means that everything around you answers the question, how do you want to live in some way? Everything from your morning routine to your car, to the way we vote or are kept from voting, the structure of the latest article you read online this morning, all of it has been designed to influence your behavior in some way. And you have the ability to say whether or not it's been for the better or for worse. And the economy is no different. It has been designed to result in certain ways that we live, often, as you're likely aware, to the benefit of some, but rarely for the benefit of all. So how is it designed? What about it is working? Who's it working for? Who's it not working for? And how might we build a system that works for everyone? My guest today is Deacon Rada, who's here to talk about it. Deacon is a permaculture theorist and designer who has been working with social change organizations in Denver for more than two decades. Deacon has spearheaded localization initiatives, permaculture research, education nonprofits, and social benefit business ventures. Currently, Deacon is focused on establishing a truly egalitarian heirloom currency and contributing to publications on social and ecological well-being. In this conversation, on the intersections of economics plus design, you'll hear us talk about imagining economic options beyond capitalism and socialism, like I mentioned, whether advancements that make society safer have actually made them better, how we create money in society, and whether money is quote-unquote neutral, what Deacon feels isn't working in our economy right now, how economics and climate are as entwined as tree roots and mycelia, and whether we'll change the economy fast enough to survive climate collapse, the immorality of compounding interest, the role of design questions in creating new economic systems, and what two values Deacon believes are foundational to building the economy he wants to see. Just one thing before I get you into this conversation, I actually recorded this with Deacon like almost a year ago in July 2021, which is kind of forever ago in pandemic years, really. Uh, but he was one of the first conversations I had. He was definitely the first one I had in person. And so I was still getting really used to what it was to record interviews with people. And I had a whole lot of tech issues that resulted in both some like quality issues that have required my tech team, my audio team to be working on them. Uh, and, you know, just now getting them to me to 
I think we lost like the first 20 to 30 minutes of the conversation in general. We just had something completely malfunction in my program and it cut it off. So this conversation does not start with a quote like most of my interviews, but we are going to hop straight into the conversation with Deacon here in a second about the intersections of economics plus design. And I think you're really going to enjoy it because even though portions of this got cut off, we talked for an entirety of like three hours. So there's still actually a remaining hour and a half left after what we lost to tech issues and what I cut out that was sort of tangential to the actual topic of this conversation, which I might release at some point in some sort of like extra bonus material. So there's a lot here for you. He is truly a wealth of information, which really is the perfect analogy for this conversation on economics, of course. So enjoy this conversation with Deacon on the intersections of economics plus design. When we look at capitalism and socialism, they are the two most closely related, most recent ideas in economics. They are the most similar two ideas of all economic frameworks. And it would be like if we treated design as though you get modernism or postmodernism. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's what design is. And it's like, wait, sorry, what? Like, <laughs> like the design is much bigger than that. But, but in economic, like you know, that would sound ridiculous to designer, but to, you know, when you frame things that way to, uh, the general public about economics, people accept it. Oh yeah. It's capitalism or socialism. That's the whole, that's the, there's a continuum between them and you can get something in the middle. You can take pieces of each and everything's built out of that. Do you think people partially feel that way because changing anything at the scale that either capitalism or socialism is at seems sort of impossible? You know what I mean? Like we kind of understand these already and we kind of already operate in them already. And so slight variations might be easier to operate within. You know what I mean? That like that, that maybe people just sort of stay in like, like that binary between capitalism or socialism or that slight, slight difference between modernism and postmodernism, you know, because they're familiar right. and it seems like at a scale that we have globally, that it might be easier just to sort of deal with even a small variation at most of what has already existed rather than how do we completely change to where we operate out of the commons or something right. like that? Um, yes, people definitely do. You know, actually, it's, it's interesting. Um, Eisenstein uh, has a framing about this. Charles Char or Charles yeah. Eisenstein. Yeah, sorry. There, there's there definitely are, there's more than one brilliant <laughs> Eisenstein out there. Um, Charles Eisenstein, uh, he writes about uh, what he calls he terms ascensionism. This idea that human thinking has only gotten better, or human culture has only gotten better, and and you know ascension ascensionism isn't unfounded in some respects. Like, um. By and large, with some relatively significant hiccups, civilization has made human life safer in terms of blunt force trauma, right? Fewer people die of like homicide, just, you know, to be straightforward, but then also accidents, like working accidents, like hunting is dangerous, you know, um, mining is dangerous. And especially when you're mining with just hand tools. And, you know, building all the, you know, so all the things that used to kill people young at, 
and you know infant mortality those things have gone down and so this this view emerges in society that well we've always been getting better so why would we look back further than capitalism those are the two newest ideas right so they must be the best and um or look too far forward because that's just impossible to think of something brand new. That's just, that's way too difficult. And there are a lot of capitalists and socialists who are very convincing. And so why would we try to be more inventive than that or look farther back than that? Um, and as it turns out, A, not every advancement that has made civilization safer has made it better. Um, and certainly not better for everyone. There is a small group of people who benefits much, much more from the safety that has come from the way civilization society is designed and has been changed much, much more than everyone else, um, especially when it comes to existential benefit, right? So a modern worker, even a modern miner, is much, much safer from the possibility of dying inside a mine especially if you're working a strip mine, right? You're never going to be inside the mine, but you're just cutting a mountain layer by layer down, right? Um, there are so many ways in which, um, you know, even the poorest of the poor have better material conditions, but do they have a better existential relationship to their world and their society? Well, poor people work much, much more now than they've worked at any time in history. And for less equity in society in a whole, and for less reflection of themselves in society as a whole, and so we have these trade-offs that we've made um, that maybe indicate that this idea of ascensionist, you know, always improving uh, society is should be questioned at least, at least questioned, because in some metrics or according to some values. Maybe it works out, but not according to all. Sure. Okay. To go back a little bit, I saw you describe somewhere, I think probably on your Instagram feed, that what you do is design relevant and productive economic systems. So can you say more about really just what it is that you do in the world and what you're interested in? Absolutely. Yeah. That's probably a good way to ground some of this. Uh, so... Um, I'll talk about a project that I'm working on right now. So the Favor Solutions Network is a thing that I wrote a manifesto for what, probably 14 to 16 months ago. I think because I think it's I know that the domain just renewed like within the last month or so. So it was like that's how I track like the uh, um, projects when like they have an anniversary. And um, the Favor Solutions Network is. It's actually a very, very simple uh, complementary currency. And the complementary currency, I can describe it in a sentence or so. It's a ledger. And everyone who is on the ledger has a balance. And you can spend or you can be spent with, receive money. Um, everybody comes in at zero and you can go negative, which means you can spend money as soon as you come in. Um, that's it. That's actually more or less the entirety of the like the economic rule set of the Favor Solutions Network. Um, and on top of that, there's a governance model for how 
you know, because it, it does need some simple rules. And so there's a governance model for how those rules are decided and changed. You know, there are rules about how you, um, how we prevent redundant accounts or what happens in the event of bankruptcy or, you know, things like that. And so there's a governance model. Um, and most of the design of Favor Solutions Network is in the governance model because the economics is so simple. Um, so that's a that's an example of it's you know that's not there's no capitalism there there's no there's no leveraging of economic advantage there's no usury inher inherent within the system it's not socialism there's no re redistribution and so here we have this very simple elegant example of a a system that any person or group of people can use to empower themselves and gain sovereignty and reclaim a major portion of their life and their collective lives and how they relate to each other that has no tether at all to the dominant systems of economic thinking. Why would something like that be necessary? Or why is it appealing? Why is it important? Why would people want it? Yeah, for sure. Um, so one of the, um, I mean, I feel like it's, it's over... I'm I'm actually trying these days to be less antagonistic towards big ideas, but um, there's there's a lie that is purported um, by essentially the school of market economics, which is that money is neutral. There are very few types of money that are neutral. Favor actually is much more neutral than other kinds of money, but you can't design a purely neutral monetary issuance mechanic. What do you mean by that? Neutral. Yeah. So neutral. So uh, when market economists say that money is neutral, what they mean is that the like money is a credit that floats around in the economy, and it doesn't influence behavior. It doesn't favor any one person over the other. It's just a unit of account. Um, well, it, it turns out that however you issue a unit of account determines how it influences behavior. So just for instance, the U.S. dollar, and this is probably the most important one. Um, and also because like, you know, the rest of the central banks followed suit when the U S dollar changed its, its issuance mechanic in 1971. Um, so all the central, central bank currencies are basically the same at this point. Um, the U S dollar is issued, uh, against interest bearing debt. So for every dollar that's created, some debt is put on an account somewhere. So the, the only way that U S dollars get into the economy is if someone takes out a mortgage or a student loan, or swipes a credit card, or takes out an auto loan. Those, all of those things, um, if they're from a lending institution that is directly tethered to or is a commercial bank, that's brand new money. So even if you go to a car dealership, those car dealerships usually are agents of a commercial bank. So when you get that auto loan from them, you're actually getting it from Wells Fargo. You know, there's the auto loan, the car dealership is authorized to lend and create new money. And that's the business they're in. Selling cars is it's a side effect, right? The creation of money is one of the largest um, activities of the economy. And that's when you, you mentioned earlier that we live inside this capitalist framework. That's that's that is it. That's it. Like it's very concrete. It's not it's not an abstraction. It is, or it's an abstraction in one respect, but it's actually you can draw very tight lines around it. It is the 
the instantiation of a usury, a usurious credit into the world. That's capitalism. I'm afraid folks have no idea what those words mean. Okay. Which usurious and uh, instantiation. Okay. Instantiation is just like the birth. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like the, uh, the creation of, right. So, uh, creating an instance, like any new singular, um, yeah, creation of it. it's like a, like a new person. Anything, an, and it's, yeah. A person is an instantiation of a human, right? Um, and so then usury is it's interesting because you actually mostly see conversations about usury in, in theological discussions, right? Because all the old usury laws are actually religious laws that say if you loan somebody money, um, you know you're loaning it to them because essentially they need it, and so you're in this position of power. And just like all of our laws about like how you treat power, like. You know, like it's it's not really okay to sleep with your patients if you're a doctor because you have power over them. It's not okay to like hit on somebody you're arresting if you're a cop, you know, like it's fucked up. Like in addition to any number of other things you might be doing as a cop. Um, and uh, the these are these, like society has decided that in a position of power, there are certain things you just can't do that we know that because you're in a position of power, you could get away with structurally. And one of those things is just charging exorbitant interest. And so more or less every society um, has put a cap on how much interest can be attached to a loan. And for most of history, loans have not been how money was created. You know, uh, money was created by some different way. And then people were loaning money out after the fact. So that's not, it wasn't a part of monetary creation. Now... And this is very recent. This is since 1971. Now we have no cap on how much money is created, on how much interest it can bear, um, any of those things. There's no cap. There's no ceiling. For the first time in human history, there is no limit to how much you can use a person. That's where usury comes from. How much you can exploit. Usury is just a, a specific term for exploitation. For It's right. for monetary exploitation. Okay. So I, I do want to go back though, just to mirror back to you, what I, I hope I'm sort of understanding from your note on how money isn't neutral. So your description of that, I think if I, I'm, I'm getting that is basically y you can claim that this, this thing has no values embedded in it, but by nature of who's offering it, how they're offering it. Basically, the fact that it exists in culture. You can't say that money is neutral because money has to exist inside of any culture that it's in. Uh, and those are my words, not yours. But basically, that they're anything is inherently imbued with values based on who created it, how it was created, how it's issued, that sort of thing, right? That's what you're saying about money? Absolutely. Yeah. So... I think that's, I think that makes so much sense based on I, the next place I was going to go is to ask you in the like childish, the most childish terms, like that, you know, like if you were describing something to a small human, what actually economics is and what design is, because I think there's a tie there in terms of especially design and that you, you can't design anything without values basically D design isn't neutral right so first let's let's go with just the very basic definitions of what's economics 
Because <laughs> I think when people hear that, the common everyday person is sort of like money something. But what does that really mean? For sure. And also, I think it's worth just design, uh, describing design because I think that can be a million different things. And I also think that it's so because of that, it seems like this um, just completely ephemeral, you know, what is like, it's hard to attach some real meaning to that. So I'd love to have you give us some substance on those two things, but in baby terms, yeah, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to stick to the baby terms. So I think actually defining economics is very fun because the etymology, which is not a baby term, but it's an important <laughs> term, which is etymology is the source of a word. It's what a word is made of. The origin. The origin or, of the word. Yeah. Sort of like the, the root piece of the word and the modifiers. Yeah. yeah. So the etymology of economics is the rules of the house, right? So it's house rules, just like you go into a bar and, you know, they say like, are oh, you shooting pool here? You got to have one foot on the ground. You can't, none of those weird, like, you know, the rules of the house. That's it. And, um, Actually, an economist that I don't reference too often, um, Robert Reich, because uh, he doesn't talk about economics very much. But anyway, he's like a kind of a he's a fairly popular guy these days, kind of a neoliberal. Um, he wrote, um, I'm trying to remember which book it was in. I don't remember right now. Uh, a great breakdown of what economics is that I I actually adore, which is basically people will transact. Everybody's going to trans. Like you take a bunch of kids on a playground and some of them have pogs and some of them have gum and one of them has a Twinkie in their lunchbox. They're going to start trading, you know, um, they're going to exchange with each other. The rules of the house are actually what creates the shape of the economy. It's the constraints. Economics is the set of constraints that we put on how we relate to each other in terms of resources. Right. And that's all it is. The reason that I think that the convergence of design and economics is so critical is that there was this like hunger on the part of economists um, at some point, like the neoclassical economists, I think were the beginning of it, like maybe a little bit before Keynes, to be thought of as scientists. And so they start venturing these frameworks that are scientific, that are very mathematical. And they want their ideas about how economics works to be seen as like, like a peer to physics, right? And I actually think that physics should be going the other direction as well. Like we should, we need to recognize that our models are not the thing itself. The map is not the territory. And a lot of folks, even people like doing physics and researching physics have forgotten. The best physicists you talk to have not forgotten this. But like there are people who are researching physics and chemistry and all of those things that have forgotten that physics itself is a model and not the, the nature of reality. And economics is even beyond that because economics, like, like Keynesian economics, is a way of exerting human intentions onto the thing that the model is of, right? But people treat Keynesian economics like it is... Like real, like this is what reality is like. And what's Keynesian ex economics? So uh, Keynes is the guy who came up with this notion that um, the way the economy works is that the government has levers 
and pushes and pulls on um like essentially the forces in the economy and the government has always done this but when the, if the government does this with intentionality then the economy can be actually completely controlled and optimized and uh and there's a lot of math in keynesian economics he's probably the first big economist whose like work is like mostly math um and uh so we get this thing where um if you as soon as you start to to treat eco economics like it's a pure to physics at the same time that physicists are treating physics like they are the nature of reality instead of a model of reality then we get this like this really dangerous progression where like all of a sudden like we have economic policy or economic ideas that are treated as though they're like it's like what gravity is instead of something that we made up right and uh, I'll throw out an example. Um, so for instance, we have an income tax. And if you talk to uh, most economists about income tax, that there is an income tax is not ever a question. It's how much should it be and how should it be graduated and all these different things. And if you throw out the idea like, well, maybe we don't need income tax. It's, they treat it like you said, like, well, maybe we don't need gravity. You know, it's like, and that's like anathema. Obviously, like, we can't just get rid of gravity. We, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not an option, right? But it is an option to get rid of income tax. Right. It's, it's completely fabricated, right? Um, property is the same, you know, that's obviously there are certain people who say we can totally throw away property. Um, what is property and what does it mean? We get to decide, you know, and there are, I think at la last time I was looking into it, there are six different, like completely different philosophical claims as to how to establish ownership and what, what property is that have been like, like mapped as a really clean cosmology. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's a lot of diversity in terms of options that we have on the table. It's a big palette. And we can choose. And as soon as we start thinking that, hey, we are the conductors of this thing, and this is where it comes into design, um, I think we'll, we'll have better economic outcomes instead of thinking of it as physics itself. This feels like wading into very deep territory, which I know you love but yeah, yeah. might go on. Could go on. Uh, we could go on for hours. Mm -hmm. uh, but what do you feel like isn't working right now with the economy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, so I'm working on favor and it's in direct opposition or indirect, you know, uh, alternative, or it's, it's, it's an answer to this userist based economic issuance. We have... And um, the income disparity uh, in the world, it's not a U.S. problem or even like a global north problem. The income disparity in the world um, is out of its expanding um, exponentially. And it is causing a lot of problems. And we haven't, I don't think we've even begun to see all the problems that are 
going to come out of income disparity expansion. Um, and it's directly tied to climate change. Um, and it's, and the, one of the most horrendous, uh, economic realizations is actually in the, the connection between climate change and economics. And uh, one of the greatest essays I've read on it was actually written, and this might sound really weird, about 3,000 years ago um, by uh, an author that is known as the Master of the Hidden Storehouse. There's no name attached to this author. Um, no, aside from that, the Master of the Hidden Storehouse. Um, and they basically describe, like they're in this conversation with the emperor, um, uh, hypothetically, I don't think they name China. It's a kind of a fictitious work. Um, but they're talking to the emperor and um, the master of the hidden storehouse says something to the effect of like the emperor asks, like, like how do you um, treat or predict um, natural disasters? And the master says, well, a wildfire is just an abundance of yang and a flood is just an abundance of yen. And so regulate yang in your government and in your culture and you won't suffer from wildfire. And, you know, same with Yen. And so the emperor says, like, oh, you superstitious fool. How can me changing how I relate inside my court and my effect on the culture stop a wildfire? And the master says, oh, no, you, mis you misheard me. I said you won't suffer from wildfire. You see, excessive Yang is building up the military too much. Excessive Yang is building up your presentation of yourself and being haughty and wearing elaborate clothing and having... All, like that's excessive yang. And if you don't do those things, then you won't overspend. And if you don't overspend, then the people will have reserves and resources and the government will have resources and the wildfire will happen, but there'll be no suffering because you'll be prepared. Same thing for yen. And so we think about that and we think about the confluence of the masses of society having less and less equity and less stability, less connection to the land less capacity to fend for themselves. And the same thing actually happening at the other end with the elites, less connection to all the rest of society. And we think about that in combination with global climate change. We've got the biggest wildfires, the biggest floods coming, and we have at the same time, the most excessive yang and most excessive yen that we've, we have on record. Right. So one of the largest, if not the largest reason that it's important for us to consider right now, the way that we do economics, the way we design economics is because, not to oversimplify, but because of climate change, that all of these pressures and what we know are probably coming in terms of natural disasters and such, economics can actually help solve? Absolutely. I think I can draw those conclusions, but can you explain just really briefly, if you can, what, why, what, why is there a connection between economics and climate change? Yeah, absolutely. There, oh, it's, there is not a connection. There are hundreds of connections. It is the connection. <laughs> yeah. Or, it's, it's the, or yeah, it's, oh, it's like, it's interconnected like tree roots and mycelia. They're like interwoven. There's so many connections. And so I'll throw out just a couple of simple ones. Um, we were, so like I already elaborated kind of on like how 
the, the money we mostly use, because there are different forms of money, but the money we mostly use is issued by giving loans. And the loans all bear interest, right? And unless you are one of those entities that issues loans, um, then you're someone just using money, but you're not collecting any of the benefit of, of that loan issuance process, right? And so, Like you're not getting the interest back. You're not getting interest back from somebody else's loan because you're not a loan issuer, right? right. Um, and so that means like the money you're using came from a loan. Whether you took out that loan or somebody else took out that loan, it me- it's enormous pressure because it means that every for every dollar that enters the economy, there are $2 or $3 that are owed to somebody, right? The average home is paid for three times over, right? So your principal, you're going to pay double the interest, which is, by the way, like an order of magnitude greater than the highest legal. Is this is we're talking about usury laws under Jewish law, under Greek law, under Catholic law. Even we're talking an, an enormous amount more interest that is being charged for homes now than was ever charged in history on a loan. Even at the recent uh, decline, which has a some, hovering somewhere between two and three percent. But it's it it compounds. Interest wasn't allowed to compound. Until uh, well, like so that did compounding interest that started well before the seventy one, um, which is just when the cap on how much money and debt could be created was lifted. Um, compounding interest though didn't start until I think the eighteenth century, um, and somebody will fact check me and be like, "Oh, this guy's a, a hack. They, they, this guy over here was charging compound interest and whatever." Uh, but for the most part, interest didn't used to compound. You you give somebody a loan, it's like it's at fifteen percent. Period. No, it's not compounding every year. So when you look at a loan that's like, oh, it's at 2%, but it compounds every year, and it's a huge principle, and it takes you 30 years to pay it off, it's not at 2%. You know, you're, you're going to end up paying double or more. Um, and so that's one of those hidden factors. So when you look at um, what, you know, you look at, you know, you look at like biblical time, then it's like, oh, a 10% interest, that sounds like so much. And it's like, there's no compounding. You know, it's so it's much much less. So, like if you if you took out a thousand dollar loan, you'd pay a hundred dollars in interest. Yeah, total. That's it. Not, you know, ten percent the first year, and then ten percent plus on whatever was left after that. You know, that right. sort of thing. That's what I mean. Yes, and so depending on which religious codes you're looking at, at from which centuries, um, you know, it, it could might be ten percent or twenty percent, but total. Um, and those are like the kind of the, the big numbers you see in history in terms of like, you know, for centuries going, uh, you know, the law that was on, on usury. So how does this affect climate change? Well, you think about a, um, this is where the profit imperative comes from, right? A company has to make more and more profits. Well, why? Because this extractive force for every dollar that gets created, $2 are owed back. It's like a game of musical chairs, but much, much worse, Right. And so that extractive pressure is where things like planned obsolescence. So when a company wants to make a toaster, it really needs to make sure that toaster is going to break, right? Because they need to be able to sell another toaster because this economic pressure is is such that you have to be constantly selling and you have to be becoming more efficient um, the more entrenched you are in that structure. Um, And so... When we look, so you want things to break so that people buy more things because you have more and more interest you have to pay off because you've taken out perhaps a business loan. Yes, 
um, or you're that you sold equity in your company to VCs, and the VCs are also part of this the structure of you know pulling out. It's it's all just collecting interest. It's like it's owning money or owning debt, owning the right to create money, and therefore owning debt. That is how the that's basically how all elites make their money. Right? That's how elites elite. That's how elite. That's that's how you elite is you own the right to create to just instantiate debt, right? Like it's um, it's just like I can just make debt out of thin air, and then people will pay me forever, right? And so this drives this necessity to create demand, um, this necessity to make things that break, um, and all sorts of things. Now, interestingly, it also has kind of driven, and this in part has actually come from um, an ecological uh, attempt to like create a green capitalism, the subscription economy, right? So um, anymore, folks don't really own things so much as they rent them. And under this idea, actually, planned obsolescence that like that need to constantly replace things is actually being diminished. And so that's that's actually a result of green capitalism. And there was a bunch of work done in the late 90s to actually create we don't we don't think necessarily of you know like, like software as a service is coming out of the late 90s, but that's when the, the economics, the economic theory that created this movement happened and that was the beginning of green capitalism was hey look, companies will have an incentive to make stable products and be more ecologically efficient if they don't sell anything. So if nobody ever owns anything, then the companies will want their products to last forever because the companies own them. And so actually, it's it's really funny. You don't think about it like the, the Xfinity router you have that you have to give back to them or they hound you forever. You know, that's actually a part of like the green capitalist revolution. Yeah, and can you explain what green capitalism is? Is green- that just using capitalism to be more sustainable? Yeah. So it's um, a set of ideas about. Um, essentially, like you know, so there were some thinkers that were like, "Well, we see cause this idea that essentially, like the usurious extractive mechanisms of capitalism, especially planned obsolescence, were destroying the planet." Right? People saw that quite a while ago, and so some folks, basically neoliberal economists, uh, neoliberals being um, folks who want to push free trade and globalization, um, and specifically globalized economics around the world, and, and even things out and kind of create a homogenous global order, that's neoliberalism. And uh, neoliberals, like they're very capitalistic by ideology, um, but also very concerned about climate change and futurism. And they have come up with uh, a set of ideas to try to reform capitalism. And this um, uh, essentially like the service-based economy, like turning everything into a service, including manufacture itself into a service, is kind of like the spearhead of green capitalism. So basically, the pressure of interest, meaning more things must be created in order for everyone who owes debt to continue paying back more and more debt. So... Again, more and more things must be created. So I'm trying to draw a tie then to climate change. So meaning the more crap we create, number one, the less, the fewer resources we have, 
the more damage to our natural resources and everything else used to create and manufacture those things. Yes. Am I, am I drawing correct conclusions here? Absolutely. That is a, a major problem. And even with the green capitalist revolution, it is, it's a bandaid. It's not getting rid of planned obsolescence. Um, innovation itself, the innovation required to fuel green capitalism, innovation is incredibly wasteful. And that's, that's the thing that folks, you know, every now, if you ever see a business that says like, we stand for innovation and efficiency, you just slap them, right? Those two things are dichotomous opposites. There are very few actual dichotomies in this world. You know, there are a lot of false, more false dichotomies than that. Innovation and efficiency are perfect opposites. And green capitalism requires constant innovation, which requires enormous churn. So if you look at companies owned by neoliberals, they have very short life expectancies. You know, how long did we work last? Like they're gone now, right? I think I saw something about the, the, the declared yeah, bankruptcy. Actually, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I, I do know that they declared bankruptcy. Yeah. I don't know if they're, they might not be gone. They, yeah. But even if they're not too big to fail, right? Exactly. The too big to fail thing, but that doesn't usually apply to tech startups. It's really just banks, <laughs> um, and GM for some reason. Uh, but you know, the, the churn of these organizations, these companies, the amount of, uh, um, investment that goes into them, um, you know, even if they're making the greenest, most efficient product in the world, what's the carbon footprint on setting up the, you know, the, the manufacturing for this experimental product that disappears? Um, Bird Scooters, or like, you know, which I think was just the lead of all the scooter companies. Um, the majority of the scooters that were created in the first wave of that like city takeover thing, because they saw that cities weren't going to make agreements with them until they were basically forced to. So those scooters were thrown away and just filled, filled landfills, you know, I'm sure someone has photos of that somewhere that are really depressing. Yeah. That's, that's innovation. It's incredibly wasteful. Now, uh, you know, they're saying, oh, but we're creating this, this green form of transportation. It's like, but, but they're all sitting in landfills because of how you did it. Yeah, and that it the story repeats over and over again, and that's green capitalism, right? So to bring it back, I think to economics plus design, right? It's that the way that we've designed the system is creating excess and resource drain and growing gaps between rich and poor, and those sorts of things. Correct. Yes. So not just climate change, but poverty, all of that. So, so by nature of knowing that the way we've designed the current system is creating those things, I would hope then that there is a way to design the system such that that can be reversed, that we don't have to operate like that. Yes. Uh, and there are actually, there are not just a way, there are many ways. Um, and there are some really fantastic thinkers out there right now that are working on that. Um, I think some of, we've already mentioned a few of them. So Charles Eisenstein, um, lays out some big, broad philosophies for principles that are, that essentially might guide one as one designs new economic frameworks. He doesn't really offer a specific economic framework, but he points to like, um, 
actually like principles and values that we need to keep in mind so that we don't make mistakes like the bird scooter mistake, right? So, so Charles Eisenstein is a great uh, holistic economic thinker. Uh, and uh, Joanna Priova from Transition LA is another. Uh, she wrote Economic Resilience, um, which I hope is still online. It was like an ebook, um, and then it evolved a little bit. Uh, anyway, but if you if you like Google economic resilience, you will find a ton of great work from Joanna Priova, and her um, I would say like her main thrust is about like the human scale work of living a more holistically like um, earth aligned economic existence um, as an individual person and then from the individual out into community organizing uh, and then scale wise up from that we have Juliet Shore um, Juliet B Shore who wrote uh, Plenitude among a number of other books and her a lot of her focus is on small organizations how do small organizations change the, their structure and their nature in order to create balance for uh, resource bases other than money and profit and restore ecosystems, restore people's lives, um, and also create anti-fragility. And that's one of actually the, the, probably the biggest criticism of green capitalism and neoliberalism in general, general is that it, it, it like embeds fragility into all of society. And that can be seen in its primary tenet is make the whole world the same. What could be more fragile than <laughs> making everything the same? Uh, right. Which, which I actually think is an incredible overlap with the idea of permaculture, which is again, how you and I met This is at the social permaculture design course and the idea that things like monocrops or anything that's a single way that you as a human or we as a society are resourced is dangerous because it's susceptible to pests <laughs> or, you know, if anything, one thing in the system breaks and that becomes unavailable, we no longer have an, an alternative option. So the idea, I think, at least one thing I get from permaculture is that you want to create a system such that it's all relatively symbiotic and that if any one thing is taken away, there are multiple resources you can draw on in order to sustain life Absolutely. or grow life. Yes. And that's why I... I really push design thinking over ideology. Because um, the, the question that I do get frequently is like, okay, well, capital, you, you know, Deacon, you know, people hear me, they're just like, you just bash capitalism and socialism in the same sentence. What are we supposed to do? What's the answer? And I'm like, that's the thing is we, people have wanted a the answer, you know, century after century and have dug themselves bigger and bigger holes because. Every time there's a group of people who wants a the answer, there's some clever person willing to sell it to them. Because it's it's as soon as you identify that someone wants something easy, that's slim pickings. That's like fish in a barrel. There is no the answer. And, and if we can unhook ourselves from this addiction to ideology for, from a need for a singular answer and realize that actually bettering ourselves which is not a single thing is the closest we will get to a single answer is better yourself and that's hard 
Yeah. I'm so glad. Yeah. Ideologies was going to be one of the things I brought up because I think there's so much of that at the root of the intention of this podcast, which is this plus that, you know, it's not this and it's not just that, right. That there is inherent value in not just as humans, us having multiple skills that we build and cultivate or jobs that we maybe jump around from and the insights that we get at the center of those things for you, like at the center of design thinking and economics, and I'm sure millions of other things, because that's the kind of human you are, but that I just think that there's such a need right now in particular, and I'm sure for many parts of time or human experience and history, but I live now, so this is my experience, but I, I feel like right now we are in desperate need from on uh, doing that unhooking that because I, because I think that one of my next questions for you was going to be, okay, great. Then number one, do you think it's possible to design a system that helps us actually live beyond climate collapse? You know, cause I, I think that's everyone's question right now. I, I think anyone listening to this would be like, okay, great, but are we still going to die? And, and, and can we do something at scale fast enough to just to, to not be, be killed by the climate basically, but also is then the answer many, many different kinds of more localized economies rather than one global economy. And does that mean that I then can't have quinoa? Right. So like, does globalization get shot? Like, does that have to die in order for us to actually survive? Yeah. So actually I hear several important questions in there and I kind of want to work from that, the end backwards. Great. So, uh, one globalization is not shot because globalization was not invented by neoliberalism. The world has always been global, right? Um, if we look back to I'm going to screw up this century, but I want to say between like the 8th and 10th century, um, Mogadishu was a global trade city, essentially the model for Venice. I mean, the India Spice Company, this stuff, that was was much later. Yeah, but But yeah, globalization is like, that's reality. You know, we are, we're on, we're in a global community, right? We, it's never moved as fast as it does now, but... We've always been in a global community. That's the reason there are pine trees on every continent and were when every explorer showed up. You know, it's like, because birds shit, you know, and, you know, they say, oh, those birds, those aren't us. And it's like, well, guess what? Our global community isn't actually just homo sapien sapien, you know, and that's a really important thing that we need to realize. And if we could, like, get a real grip on the reality of that, we'd be a lot better off. Um, but even... The, just the homo sapien sapien global community is very long lived and it's not going to go away. Now, will you still get quinoa? It might be very expensive <laughs> because yeah, um, it's subsidized right now. And so it's right, artificially is, cheap. Which is maybe part of one of the solutions, right? Is that you make access to things that are more bad. That's a terrible way to put it, but more bad for the, the environment so that you're de-incentivized to use it, right? Right. Yeah, it's 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 one of those 
strange things to think about, but in your, any grocery store, there are two apples sitting next to each other, and one of them is terrible for the environment, and one of them is great for the environment. And the one, if you're here in Colorado, that's great for the environment, came from Steve Ela, like most likely, you know, right, Ela Family Farms, right? And the one next to it came from Fiji, and that is like when we actually think about that, just like sit and just like strip away the biases and, and the basic, and just like holy shit, that's insane. Right. Um, and that apple from Fiji might have been waxed in Johannesburg and, and arrived in Denver. Right. And that is the reality of the world we live in. And all of that fuel was subsidized. And so that means that poor folks paid to fly an apple around the world and then paid to buy it. And who kept that money? Right. Because the poor folks paid on both sides and then somebody owned the right to create the debt that the poor folks paid for. It's like, it is, this is, that's where the inequality comes from. Okay. So that is an answer to the, well, we still have quinoa. It'll be expensive. Um, globalization is not going away, but under that, there was this question of like, like, are we going to live through climate change? Right. And the answer is no, nobody gets out of life alive. Right, like we're all gonna die, and that is another one of like these base realizations. You're talking about like better yourself, like like bettering ourselves begins with accepting the things that we already know, but we constantly act in violation of. Okay, but here's a real life retort that that came from my last week, which was I I drove into the mountains with my dad and his wife, and we were going to scatter the ashes of my grandparents, his parents. And in the car ride up there, we started talking about we started talking about AI and the idea that not long from now, what everybody's talking about, we might be able to plant our consciousness into some sort of mechanistic thing and, and might even look a lot like our body, but won't actually be our body. And my dad and his wife we're arguing, I, and, and you know, I'm going to preface this by saying, I, I'm not totally sure I know where I sit yet, but I think I hear what you just said in terms of like, we're, we're going to die. Death is a part of the system. Nothing, you know, nothing else is true except for death and taxes or whatever. Right. So death is going to happen. And I, you know, my response is going, thank you, Wendell Berry, because Wendell Berry, the author, the poet, the farmer, I read Wendell Berry and it was the first time that I felt like I integrated the reality that de death is part of the cycle and humans are not outside of that cycle as much as we like to imagine that we are. And so not only might I die or you die at an individual level, but the idea that collectively as a species, we might die. It was the first time I went and that might be okay. That, that might be part of the grander whatever is going on here. You know what I mean? And so I'm in this car ride with my dad and his wife, and they're talking about basically eternal sentience, you know, consciousness living on forever. And my response to that is, I don't really want that. I think that death by nature gives us a lot of beauty and, you know, like you can get into a lot of like esoteric existential conversation around that. But 
I think what I want, what I'm trying to get at is a question that's like, you say that we're going to die and that's going to happen. But I think some people right now are going, well, we don't have to, yeah. and we're going to find a way not to. Yeah. And I have a very simple direct response to that. It changes nothing. We're still going to die. So there was a series that came out recently, Altered, Car Altered Carbon, mm -hmm. right? On Netflix. Yeah. And I'm not recommending it necessarily. It's... Uh, there's a lot of gratuitous violence and just it's it's another trauma porn piece, right? Uh, it's about here's where we're headed. It's it's there's great commentary, um, but it's rough. And in it's one of those worlds, right, where you you can be, you can upload yourself, you can you know back yourself up and whatever. And here's the thing: is like you're backing yourself up into one. I I think it's not necessarily the case that we'll ever get there in any meaningful way. Um, Right, so that's that is a huge assumption in itself, and I kind of doubt it. But I'll grant it. I'm fine with granting it. You're still sitting in hardware. You can't run software without hardware, and every piece of hardware is going to die. The end. It's you know, every at some point, every server farm, every whatever, they're all going to die. Like, and if you if you extend your life to another thousand years, then all things being relative. That's just the length of your lifetime. It doesn't change you've, anything. Yeah, you've still died. And yeah. and longer doesn't necessarily mean better. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And that's so interesting because that, that argument hadn't occurred to me. But the idea that if everyone could live on forever as you know software running and inside of a hardware, whether that's it looks like a body or if it's just a box in a massive server farm, that... There still have to be people to care for those servers, right? Or yeah. whatever or robots or whatever. whatever hardware exists yeah. to be carrying that software, and the software probably is going to break down too. Yeah, uh, because we know we work enough with tech now. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. the software on a printer is ninety percent of the problem. But so there will never be enough people alive to take care of a server farm that's basically just a never-ending graveyard. That will just right. keep getting larger and there will be fewer and fewer people in ratio yeah. alive to take care of that. And if you think about the time scale of forever for a moment, <laughs> right? The Every century that goes by, the likelihood that something happens, you know, like, like how many times you're rolling that die that Yellowstone doesn't erupt, that, you know, sunspots don't like just fry the whole thing that a wildfire fire doesn't set the server farm on yeah you know torch it and let's just say we run the server farm uh, on a sharded database and we put a bunch of servers on asteroids and other planets and so we've got like super redundant backups guess what the sun's going to supernova oh okay we got out of the solar system well guess what like the milky way is going to implode it just changes the time scale and everything you know all things being relative nothing nothing has changed I think their response, because I think this came, if I'm remembering, this came up in conversation was who cares, but I still get to live a little bit longer. Sure. And I think to your point, a thousand years or a hundred or 10 in the grand scheme of things doesn't really mean much. That's my response. And then they go, well, it does to me because then I get to see my great grandchildren get married, you know. Right. And that's totally fine. But it's, it is at that point, the equivalent of maybe I can get another pair of shoes tomorrow. Totally. There's no difference in kind. And that's what death adds, right? Meaning. Because 
if that just went on forever, it would just be another pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. So I just saw my great, 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 great grandkids get married. This is the 7,000th wedding I've seen. Who cares? Yeah. Was there, was there an open bar? <laughs> what was the first dance? Right. Like, just, you know, whatever. It's, it's all the same. And it's, it's okay. If, and this, I'm not, this is not to poo-poo it. If that is what, what a chunk of, and it is what a, a chunk of society genuinely believes is the most important thing to do, Godspeed. But it doesn't change the fact that you're going to die. Even if you're a computer. Even if you're a computer. I feel yeah. like my dad should know that because he works in computers. Yeah. <laughs> that should have been the logical response I had yeah. was, you work with enough computers to know that they always They're die. die. But I think there's, coming back to that and like climate change, right? There's this other simple thing. Because of the nature of the planet and where humans are at um, with climate change, uh, a thing that we know, we're already, we've seen the beginnings of climate collapse. So we're already in it. And when we look at what is predicted for how climate collapse plays out, it is major catastrophic events and slow burn events. So those are, like, those are basically the only two things that can happen, right? It's an earthquake here, a flood there. And we're basically already in the slow burn. Right. We're in the, we're in the slow burn, but we also are seeing like Sandy, like Hurricane Sandy. That was really big for the East Coast. That was not catastrophic. normal. Yeah, it was not a normal thing. Um, so we have these little isolated catastrophes and we have these slow burns. And the thing is, we are, we're humans and even more than humans, we're hominids, like the, you know, the super family of, of human and hominids have lived through, I think three global extinction events, you know, that we didn't even have any hand in. And the biggest threat to climate change right now, I know some people might not like hearing this isn't even human made it's yellowstone erupting that's that's our biggest existential threat like in terms of survival right it will happen and when it does it will be globally catastrophic it'll be global and it'll be worse than like it'll be worse than fukushima it'll be worse than the hurricane sandy combined it it'll be awful right um this is not to to naysay any efforts to reduce human impact um economically or climactically or you know in terms of all of these different factors um, but humans are probably going to live through that, even at, at the worst case. Some at least. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's humanity. Like they, like, you know, the, or the human meme, um, you know, uh, we as a species have interbred with other species before and made it work. Sadly, we then killed them all off. That was the first act of big, like, like, uh, you know, it, was it like the embracing of fragility? We were probably better off when there were six different species of hominid, you know, around the world in terms of surviving things like climate change, right? Wait, okay, hold on. Sorry. Tell me more. What is, well, we, what's so, that event? Um, it was several events. I think the last one was when like, humans killed off, killed off and or interbred with, like bred out the Neanderthals, right? Got it. But before okay. that, there were four other hominids that it seems like, you know, either died of their own causes or us, um, right? And so, like, basically, we have survived through a lot of shit. Our civilization is the thing people are worried about dying. And I would challenge everyone to question that. Whether or not it will die or no, whether or not what, it should. Whether or not we should be worried about it. It's not about should. I mean, I, I honestly, I think it's like the civilization we know as we know it will die. It might die so slowly, nobody really even notices. 
like the same way, like etiquette changed during COVID, but it changed pretty slow. That was, but that, I mean, in the grand scheme of human culture, that was pretty fast. But like, you know, groups splintered and separated farther away. Um, there are, there are social segments of society that will probably never gather in groups again of 10,000 in a stadium. There are people who just won't do that anymore. People who've changed the way they travel forever. You know, and that was relatively a relatively small event when we think about everything that is coming down the pipe, right? And so our civilization, uh, you know, little changes like people working from home more will become like making changes like that will become more common. You know, zoning changes will will happen throughout the world to reintegrate commerce and reduce travel time. That's a big change. And so whether human civilization collapses, like it's, well, it's not going to collapse all of a sudden. It's too big and there's, there are too many intricacies and too many institutions, but it's not going to exist as it exists now, a hundred years from now. It can't. Okay. So I think that maybe brings us back to at least maybe the one remaining question from before, which was, is the solution, quote unquote, or solutions, plural, going to look like a glo- you know, one global thing, more like global capitalism, or will it be lots of local iterations of what works regionally, perhaps? Yeah. I think yes. Yes to um, both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like both so, and. Yeah, both and. Like, for instance, so the favor I'm working on is, um, not. I wouldn't say global, um, but it could be. Right. There's nothing about it that is explicitly local. Whereas I've worked on other currency projects that are explicitly local in their mechanical structure and for reasons, because um, we need a polyculture of solutions. And I think some economic interventions should be localizing interventions and some should be so that we can relate to people far away in a more holistic way. Right. Because both things are going to happen. Now, the distance that our dependencies are spread is unsustainable. And the on the face of it, meaning of a thing being unsustainable mean is that at some point it's going to stop happening that way. That's, that's what unsustainable means. So we're not going to continue to have like, like global food dependency, right? There are like a lot of the things we eat here come from someplace else. A lot of the things that we grow nearby go way far away. Um, that we can't keep doing that. So we're not going to keep doing that. And so some things are going to go very local, um, and some things will probably stay global. Um, you know, I think that one thing that has that we've seen that I think people have enjoyed, I don't hear a lot of complaints about, is that there are cultural movements that spread globally, the first of which was hip-hop, of course, in unprecedented time. And they don't spread universally, they just spread globally. So like not everybody in the world is like super into hip hop, but hip hop was the first cultural movement that like reached every major city in like two decades. That never happened before in all of human history, you know? Um, And like when I look at all the literature on civilization collapse and climate collapse, nobody's actually, I mean, people complain about hip hop. I've heard lots of people complain about hip hop, but like economists don't complain about hip hop. Cultural leaders don't complain about hip hop. Like it was a pretty cool thing that we did that. So like there are some 
things that because of you know the nature of communications and the nature of media might remain global and benefit us like this the permutation of cultural memes like you know a thing like like the way they do hip hop in France is incredibly different than the way they do it in South Korea so it's not just that it spread it's that it spread and as soon as it touched this very different culture, it mutated wildly. And we can benefit from that. Okay. So let's go back to design. Where, where does that fit in? Where does it give you hope? I see design as, if not the opposite of ideology, the answer to ideology. And to me, that's a really strong distinction. Like, wow. Um, so ideology... Uh, follows a very simple pattern. It, you know, like I'm going to use Thomas More because he's the, the most cartoonish example of this because you know, Thomas More wrote Utopia. And Utopia is, uh, it's this society, it's on an island. He even idealizes what the geographic shape of the island is. And then like all of the culture and the governance structure and everything fits the the island. And so he designs this, whatever, this place that's supposed to be a paradise. I didn't even think it was actually that good an idea. Um, but I, I respect the effort, you know, and the man died for it. It's, it's, I, he needs some credit and anyway, um, but you have this ideal image and that's where every ideology starts is with an ideal image. We say, here's the picture that we want and we're going to just march straight to it. And we're going to march over everything that's between us and it because the, that ideal is what's important. And and I was just going to say to me also often ideologies are, they're so narrowly focused that anything that deviates from it at all, like you said, sort of gets run over a anything that challenges that ideal image of, of the correct way forward can't, can't be integrated into it. So everything alternative must die. Yes, absolutely. And I think that this is, um, like I, I don't necessarily consider myself explicitly, a uh, humanist existentialist. Um, but I think that specifically like this, the school of existentialism gave us this one beautiful meme that I, I wish folks like look more broadly spend some time with, which is that um, when that human history is full of people laying down their lives in service of an abstraction that is supposed to be worth more than their lives because if they had it, they would like their lives. And I might be kind of like butchering that. Like there's, you know, some serious existent like, uh, existentialist out there who is just like, why would, why did you say it that way? That's awful. And it's like, well, I'm not an existentialist, but, um, that's what I take away from that, that school of philosophy. And I, th and that's what I find to be super valuable within it is that, when you look at, you know, this like ends justifying means kind of mentality, which I'm completely opposed to, like any, any time you start making means and ends decisions, you've fallen into ideology. Like, like, uh, <clears throat> one has fallen into ideology. Like, um, there is, if there is ever a division between ends and means, if the two things are ever different from each other it is most likely that ideology ideology is occurring and so this 
I'm going to bring this back to design. Um, this idea of painting the picture first and then doing all your problem solving, that's ideology. And design is the exact opposite. Design says, we don't know what it looks like at the other end. But because we are disciplined practitioners who have been working on improving ourselves, we've collected some questions we believe are good and we're going to ask them. And if we ask them honestly in every moment of our lives, we will end up painting a better picture. It's better. It's a better way of living life. And I don't know what it will produce for any individual community or person in terms of beliefs, lifestyle, habits, but I believe it's better. Yeah. So there's an article I found online that I'll link to in the show notes where the author says something about, oh, so basically the idea that a lot of people tend to start with the tool or the strategy and not the why or, or what do we value, right? Which might be some of those good questions. Why are we doing this? What are our values and how should those be imbued and whatever we're building, right? And she tells a story about how when she was renovating her kitchen and her new house with her husband, she wanted to start by selecting a great tile. She just loved this tile for her kitchen. But her husband in response, who's an architect, wanted them to first ask, how do we want to live? And that that's a design question, right? That's going, let's not start with the tool, which is the tile. But there's something deeper here about about asking those good questions. And that's what, like you said, design is used for mm -hmm. or good, good design, quote unquote. Yes. And it, you know, like it, it changes, it varies. Like, like I'm saying, it's not an ideology. So it, it, it adjusts, like the design process adjusts itself to the, the project, to the type of, of scope. Really. It's, it's all really about scope. And so is the scope a website? Is the scope a brochure? Is the scope a civilization? You know, is the scope of family. These are all just design scopes, you know? And I think that actually there are a few questions that do apply to all of them. What do we value? Who is this for? Like, what do we care about? You can ask that for a business card and it's yeah. not irrelevant. How do we want to live? How do we want to live? Even to a business card, mm -hmm. right? Because do you want to hand out a business card? Is that who you want to be in the world? Yeah. How do you want to hand them out? Do you want them to be able to fit into your wallet? Those are all like questions about how you want to live. Yes. And I mean, one of the most famous resumes I've ever heard of uh, is for a guy who teaches uh, business at Art Center. Um, it's just, it was one eighth of an inch taller than letter size with an eighth inch red stripe across the top. And the rest of it was in material. Because he knew when he graduated from, uh, he didn't go to Art Center, he just teaches there. But he knew when he graduated that the, what, the content of his resume was the same as thousands and thousands of other people. He was a graduate. He was 22 years old. So the fact that his resume was 11 inches, 11 and an eighth inches tall, it was the best he could possibly do for himself. And it launched the rest of his life. Because it stuck out in a stack of papers yeah, that all looked the same. Yes. And... That's design, you know, and it comes from the question is, what do I want my first impression to be on a person on the other side of the country 
in New York and I'm, you know, in California and I'm applying to this, to IBM, you know, what is IBM going to think of me when I send them a sheet of paper? What do I want them to think? And I want them to think, oh, this cheeky bastard, you know, and that's what he wanted. And that's what they thought because he started at the beginning and he played through the rest of the design. And that might sound really, really trite. But that is the same process basically that I use to come up to like to, to make the decisions that led to favor, which who knows if, if it will take off or if people will use it. But when people have the experience of using it, their experience will be based on those initial assertions and, and answers to those questions, which, which like you said, is like, what's wrong with the economy? And you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about everything that's wrong and it's in terms of hurricanes and displacement and all these different things. And I see, economically speaking, it all traces back to this one rule at the Fed and I can make a different rule. I can make the antithetical rule in an elegant, simple system. And so people will have the experience of existing in a mycelial peer-to-peer -peer network instead of a hierarchical network. And that difference in experience will make all the difference in the lives of anyone who relies on this tool. It's one simple rule. It's not any more complicated than an 11, 11 and eighth inch tall resume. So then applying design to economics and climate change and looking forward, what are some good design questions that you start with? The, the best design question is, I, I believe, always, what are my values? Because I think a person needs to start by designing their life. Right. And so you can, you can spend a lot of time on that question and you can copy and paste it into everything you design, right? Because <laughs> they, they shouldn't change. Like if your values are different when you're designing your life than when you're designing your living room, then there's a problem. You need, to go back off. To, you need to have to go back to the drawing board. So what do I value and why? That's, that's a, always a fantastic uh, design question. That's introspective. And then the extrospective, I don't know if that's a word, uh, design question that I think should be asked for everything is who is this for? And I think if you really have those, what do I value and who is this for down, the rest of them just Google it, design process for websites or design process for whatever, like, you know, um, but if you really get what do I value and who is this for, like you can take that all the way. Yeah, I'm I, I'm so with you. I so my background, of course, is you know, fifteen to twenty years of branding and marketing and communications and graphic design sorts of things, and you know, every time I go into a new company to work on a project, the very first thing I start with is values, because agreed, I think that everything comes down to values, and. I think also the key is like, what are the real values? Because I've had plenty of brands that I've built where they say they have certain values, like they're aspirational values, but operationally they actually don't have those values, which can really muck things up, which is neither here nor there, but just an agreement that I think values are integral to doing anything. It's like, you know, again, I guess like the 
building the tool or strategy instead of asking the why or what do you value? Because if you're like, well, what life do you, what kind of life do you want to live? And you're like, and, and the answer is, I want to have a house. You go, well, that's a tool or a strategy. That's not like, what kind of life do you want to live? And why do you want to live it that way? Because if you want freedom, maybe a house isn't the right thing. Maybe it is. Maybe it gives you financial freedom, but is financial freedom your value or is mobility, you know? So you really like, that's the the art, right? Of design thinking is that you're really in a series of iterative questions that gets at that deeper thing. Absolutely. And when I work with people, I insist that um, the conversation about values can actually meander. And I believe that the design process should be allowed to take as much time as it takes. Um, I've gotten myself into trouble that way. <laughs> so I, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily evangelical about that, but spending some time on values is important. And you can meander a whole lot, but your value statement should come down to a single word or, or any given value should come down to a single word. Um, and especially as an organization, you get three tops, right? And one of them is more important than the other two. And if not a word, then a single term, right? Some, you know, maybe it's hyphenated. Uh, and something that's very, very important about values, I believe, is that your value would not change if you were never allowed to be in the business you're in, right? Or to do the same, like if you're designing a living room, it's like, okay, we're talking about your values. Do those same values, like we mentioned this before, you know, they can't change from your life to your living room. It also, like if your value as a car manufacturer would be different if all of a sudden you were running a coffee shop, then it's not your, your value. So it has to be consistent no matter what circumstances exist. And you would have to believe that it would matter even if you were a different person. Your values should be that pure. And I think that um, for me, following value comes purpose because purpose is where your values meet your circumstance, right? That's where, you know, like you, okay, so you happen to be an automobile manufacturer or a coffee shop owner. Like all of a sudden you can have a purpose that is contextual to your existence. And from purpose, you can create goals, um, which are more temporally bound and, and et cetera. And you can get all the way down to, to metrics and start measuring things. A lot of people start, start at what they want to measure. I want to have a lot of money. I want to have a house. It's this thing to measure. Like I can measure that I have more money at 60 than my father did. And then I'll be happy. And it's like, no, metrics are the very last thing. Yeah. I mean, it's like, this is why I think in the design world, the the thing that drives me wild is when a company goes, okay, well, we want to hit 1000 social media followers or what have you. Right. And you're like, we haven't even had a conversation about whether even social using social media is important or why. And so the entire project of marketing becomes metrics. And I think as a society, of course, I think our generation is the, the first ones that have, have had social media sort of for a large majority of our adult adulthood. Right. And of course, younger generations have been born into social media and we haven't really built a media literacy around why we want to use it, how we want to use it, that sort of thing. 
but yeah, that drives me wild about that. But I think the, what I would want to know, I guess, from you is it, it, so if a single word should be the pure value, what do you feel like if we're designing a new economy or economies, you know, a polyculture set of economies, what, what do you feel like the guiding value under the kind of economy and world you want to see? So mm -hmm. I'm not saying that we should do or that globally what will be created because no one can guess that, but what would be the underlying value to you of the economy that you would want to see created? Right. So I said, you get up to three, but one of them has to be more important than the other two, right? Um, so you're going to give me five. So I'm going to give you two, actually. Ooh. Up, up to three should be allowed, but I got two. Gratitude and consent. Tell me more. And gratitude is more important than consent, which is, that's, that's a rough thing to say, but I believe that it is true. Um, I, I, without you explaining it before, or before you explaining it, I could, I could assume that gratitude to me breeds consent. When you, when you have a, a true sense of gratitude for someone else, for something else, for a resource, consent should naturally flow from that. Yes. And that is actually the reasoning is because I, I believe that consent in all of its manifestations can be derived from a sense of deep gratitude and it doesn't work the other way around, not as well. Um, and so that is my, my reasoning. And uh, I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about this in, you know, very logical terms, but I will also cop to the fact that like I have like inherited essentially these values from religion. Like I have a religious upbringing, a religious background. I studied, I still study theology. I've studied theology probably my whole life. And there's this thing where I, I actually spent a year in a, an apprenticeship in Kabbalism and a, um, when my instructor was showing me the Sephirot, which is like the 10 basic principles, uh, of, you know, that, that kind of underlie the metaphysics of Kabbalism without getting into like making this a whole theology conversation. Um, he drew a line across the, the kind of the top part portion, like kind of making a, a head and a body of this stack of principles. And he's like, these three are a set and these seven are a set. And there's one that actually straddles the line, one, one principle. And you can understand a lot about each node in this set of 10. There, there are whole books written. Like there are actually like, there's one really famous book, the Enneagram is just on the node Yassad. It's the ninth principle, right? Like, and there are other books you could write on Yassad. Like, um, there's so much to say. And he asserted to me, he's just like, if you only understand that the top portion is about the simple fact that the world as it exists, every part of it is good. That's all you need to know. Everything else is like useful for designing systems, for diagnosing things, but it all just comes back to the world is good. And everything below that is do not impose yourself on people. And so the nature of the world being good, that imbues you with gratitude? Yeah. If you, if you look around and you're just like, yeah, this is good. I can work with this. This is... The Hebrew word is dayenu, right? Um, uh, which sometimes translated like at the Seder, when it's recited in English, it 
is said it would have been sufficient. Like if God had only delivered us from Egypt, but left us in the desert, it would have been sufficient. Like that would have been enough. But also manna, also this every, at every bit, at every single step. Everything right? is bonus. Yeah. It like that would have been enough. Yeah. That would have like, whatever it is you have, however small it is, it is enough to live a good life. And that is hard to say, knowing the hardship in the world and knowing that there are people who have experienced much more hardship than I ever have. Um, and I want to be sensitive to that. Um, but at the same time, I see this declaration made by people who have endured insane suffering. Um, one of my biggest heroes, Viktor Frankl went through every horrible thing I can think of. Lived through the Holocaust. Lived right? through the Holocaust. Watched his... Wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Right. Yes. Um, wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, founded Logotherapy. His, his system that he used to help himself, obviously, and then lots of other people, including several SS officers, get through the trauma of the Holocaust. Um, it, he actually... He was developing that before uh, any of it started. And... Um, yeah, he saw his family killed right in front of him, you know, and and unspeakable other things for you know happened to all kinds of other people. And of course, he nearly died many many times and could have died easily, and um, and not just death. You know, the, I don't have to recount the Holocaust, what it was like, but um, Viktor Frankl through the whole thing and at the end, you know, survived and still believed the world is basically good and it is all worth it. And we get to create the, and that's the basis of logotherapy is we are, you know, as, um, Willy Wonka said it, you know, we are the music makers. We are the dreamers of dreams. It's on us. We get to, we get to decide. And that's amazing. What a gift. Yeah. Right. Day in like everything is bonus. Like we just, what, what an honor to get to create in the midst of all of it. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think what you're describing is basically the, just that real gratitude is not ignoring the hard real gratitude is going i acknowledge the hard i can be in grief i can experience real pain i can go through all of those things and still say i can't believe what you know what a gift life is yeah. how, how good at its core is cuz i and, and i love that you went into that example of victor frankel because you know, I think in a, in a conversation that largely, you know, talked a lot about climate change that I think in my experience, so many folks I know are like, this is shit. Everything is shit. Everything's crumbling. We're going to die. What does it even matter? You know? And actually one of the folks that will be on the podcast probably before this conversation when it airs is Andreas Weber. And I think I brought this up, this book up in the social permaculture design course, but he wrote a book called matter and desire and erotic ecology among many other books. And that I read literally right after Wendell Berry, Wendell Berry's art of the commonplace to be more specific. So I had just sort of integrated this idea of death as part of the system and then read Andreas Weber's book and it, and I'll tell this story in that conversation with him, I'm sure, because it was so meaningful to me that 
you know, he has this whole analogy of like the, the world isn't like, we're not dying tomorrow. So we can't just sort of screw everything. We're going to spend everything. We're going to, you know, like go do all of the hedonistic things that we wish we could do on a daily basis or travel the world or whatever it is that you do. If you knew you were dying in a week or something, we're much further than that. And, and everything, many things do seem to be an entropy, decaying, dying, what have you. So, so what do you do in the midst of that? And, you know, I think to my recollection, his response is sort of like, well, love. And that seems so fluffy, you know, but I think that's where gratitude gets really practical is that a real embodied sense of the fact that the world is good and that by and large stuff is pretty good and that there is just so much abundance and life and meaning and connection and community, even despite the wildfires, the hurricanes, the impending doom, you know? So I, I love that that was your answer, gratitude. Cause I, I mean, I also think that it's one of the most unifying factors across all faith or religion traditions. I'd like ever. to think so. I hope so. <laughs> so after all this, because design and economics can be very broad. And I, I knew inviting you in for a conversation because you're not only intelligent, but, and because you make thousands of connections between everything else. Uh, but you are a beautiful intellectual thinker. And I think the, the work of communicating that out to the public is figuring out how to contain that in a way that's digestible. Right. And so I knew that was going to be one of our challenges because we can both get kind of esoteric and in, in our little lanes of, this is the thing we love to talk about. And, and so I, I knew that would be hard. So if, if after all of this conversation on economics plus design, and, and plus climate change, I think that was a huge part of this also. What, what, what do you feel like would be the sort of summary you would give people about those intersections? Yes, thank you. Um, I, so I've been, you know, kind of signing off like on my Instagram posts with this hashtag um, that I searched and nobody had used it for anything. Design sovereignty or nobody had used it recently enough that Instagram registered it when I searched it. Uh, and I know that there's like this sovereignty movement, which is like, like kind of a weird tea party thing. And that's, it's not about that. Like it's not, this isn't my thing. Um, but, uh, if there's a message that I had for folks, it would be to like to find empowerment through process orientation. That's the design part. Process orientation means that it's not just that the journey is greater than the destination, but there is no destination. You get someplace and you find that getting to that place was just a part of your journey to something else. Just, you know, part, and it's important to have a trajectory. You have to have a vector, but you're always on that vector. You don't, you don't reach a thing. So process orientation means... Being in just, it's just that being in process and that being the focus. So there, there is never a means versus ends debate. If you're having one, you fucked up. Like, 
There's, there isn't, there, it's just not a thing. Um, like, because there's no end, right? Um, this is the idea behind like, you know, finite and infinite games. It's like, you know, life is an infinite game. You know, even business is an infinite game. Uh, relationships, we don't, we don't, so we don't have that. So become process oriented. And that is design because it eliminates the ideal. Because even if you attain some picture that you set out for yourself, when you get there, by being there, things will start changing and it will just become very, very soon a point behind you. So have no ideal, be oriented in process. And then sovereignty is about developing the self um, and then moving outward. In permaculture, we didn't talk about permaculture very much, but in permaculture, there's this idea of the zone system. And, you know, you, you started zone zero in your life, in your home, and you, then you know, like, so zone zero, zero is like the self, the individual person. And then you have the people you live with and you have your garden space, like your, your herb garden right outside your window. Just past that, you have, you know, hardier things. And that's perma, that's land permaculture. And in social permaculture, it's your, you know, your coworkers and then your extended family you don't see as often. And then your community and on and on and on. So we design from the center outward. Well, the fact of the matter is like even like going in either direction, there's no end. If you go internally, you are a collective. And even just your your mind, your your limbic system is a different self than the frontal cortex. You, they have different agendas. So the like the gardening, the the betterment, it goes all the way down and all the way out. And if, when you combine these ideas, this is why I talk about designing sovereignty. When you combine these things, the idea is not to reach an endpoint, not to seek an ideal, but to better and improve your footprint. Um, whether that's you know actually just working on your limbic system, right, or working on your daily habits um, and being process oriented, and a thing that being process oriented gives us is this redefinition of what it is to be to better ourselves and to become a good person. Because being a good person, we've eliminated the idea of perfection, right? By process orientation, we can't become perfect beings and be process or if we think that being process oriented is a good idea, because those those two things are contradictory. Being a good person means making the effort to improve. Because that's process orientation. And so when I think about climate change, it's like become a person who makes the planet a little more survivable for whoever is 100 years down the pipe and is wandering through this wasteland. Be the person that started that seed bank and put it in a time capsule. Be the person who created those conflict resolution strategies and wrote them down and iterated on them and worked on them and made them, you know, become the person who makes conditions for yourself two months from now more suitable to gratitude, to being grateful. So design sovereignty, design orientation, and sovereignty obviously plays heavily into economics. You know, the rule, which is we talked about is the rules of the house. So when you're cultivating your system, your footprint, cultivate it for self-governance, autonomy, and to not step on anyone else. That's the consent piece. 
those those are all the pieces of the puzzle. There's a lot to it. And I'm, I'm cramming a lot into this little bit that was supposed to be a summary. But I think I I think that if we play with like we think of all those things I just threw out there as a Rubik's cube, a Rubik's cube that doesn't like necessarily need to be the same color on every side. You know, like you know those folks who like take the Rubik's cube and they put patterns into it and like because it, it's just a block. Just take those pieces and fuck with it. Process orientation, gratitude, you know, self-sovereignty, the scaling of living systems. What can we derive from thinking about all those things in combination? And if I think if anyone thinks about those things, they will be a designer of life. If you just spend some time dwelling on like, what is my process? Like, how in control of my thoughts am I? What does what control mean? How good is that? What, what's a good kind of control? Like if you just think about all those different pieces and just roll them around like a Rubik's cube that doesn't need, that doesn't have a specific solution, like then you're doing the thing. Then you're doing the thing, people. I love that. And also take those pieces and fuck with it. Like that's what we get to do with life, right? Take the pieces and rearrange them or design them in a way that makes us feel like, yes, this is the kind of life I want to live. And even better if we're doing it with other people, right? Asking how we want to live collectively. What kind of lives do we want to live together? Okay. All right. You can find Deacon online at squiggles.com. That's S-Q-G-L-Z.com. You can find that link, links to other places you can follow and support Deacon like Patreon, show notes from our conversation, and links to everything we talked about by going to Deacon's episode on my site at thisplusthat.com slash episodes, as always. Thisplusthat.com is also where you can sign up for the This Plus That newsletter and my texting community two places where you'll get more behind the scenes related content and personal insights from me. You can also find me elsewhere online at this plus that pod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you feel grateful for this work, you can drop me a tip or become a monthly supporter by going to my website and clicking on mutual aid. Whether or not you support me financially, you get equal access to all of my content. But if you happen to feel inspired to give me give to me financially, these are just a couple of ways that I open myself up to receiving gifts in return from you. And if you haven't yet, please rate the show five stars on your favorite app, give the show a review and tell your friends about it. So if they also like mashing weird things together and talking about the nature of the universe, we can all geek out together. And as always, I would like to acknowledge that the Arapaho, Cheyenne and Ute tribes are the original stewards of the land where I record these conversations. And I recognize that the history of displacement of the indigenous tribes and nations who call Colorado home, as well as the black labor forcibly used to work that land in the wake of that displacement is a real thing. Uh, and I'm continuing to learn and grow and making my commitment to learning more about land back and everything else like a reality and not just performance. Uh, in terms of just reading this and calling it a day. One of the things I did recently was I found out that Kim Tallbear, which is one of my favorite indigenous uh, writers and thinkers on the internet, uh, actually has turned her blog, which used to be called The Critical Polyamorist, into a substack called... 
uh, unsettled. And I'm now finding, uh, I'm now following that. And I would love for you to follow that also and support her work. I think she's incredible. She is definitely someone who has helped me learn some better dialogue around monogamy and polyamory and how I want to be in relationship, not just in my romantic partnerships, but also with everything around me from the land to my work, to you, to my animals, uh, and you know, the, the animals who live alongside me and all the things. So I would love for you to follow her work. I also want to thank as usual, the team at Upfire Digital for doing the audio processing for this show. You can find them online at Upfire Digital. Special shout out to Eric, who just continues to kill it. Even as you know, he has his own things to deal with in life. He's still doing this work for me and I appreciate it so much. That's where my gratitude goes for sure. And you know what? Of course, as always, thanks to you for listening. It is such a gift that you're here continually, or if you're new, it's a gift that you've listened this far. And I'm just stoked that you're here with me in conversation. You're here with me in the questions and that we could, that we just keep to, we get to keep having them together. So until next time. <laughs>